Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. We're a member of the Public Health Podcast Network, the Virginia Audio Collective, the Independent Podcast Network, and the Family Podcast Network. And we're on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia and 1650 a.m. in Hampton Roads, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Again, that's pcfpodcast at vhha.com. And with that housekeeping handled, today we are excited to be joined by Dr. Sherry Barkin, who is the Physician-in-Chief at Children's Hospital of Richmond at VCU and Chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the VCU School of Medicine. Our conversation today will cover her why for pediatrics, her clinical research work, and much more. And so with that, welcome to the program, Dr. Barkin. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're glad to have you, and we want to thank you again for being with us. Part of the fun of doing this podcast is sharing interesting stories with our listeners, and through the preparation process, we, as the hosts, often learn a bit about our guests and what makes them tick. Over the years, we've asked many of our guests who are providers to share memorable patient stories with us. In your case, in doing some research, I see that you have a story about an interaction with a young boy in your care while you were still a medical student and how that cemented your focus in pediatrics as a specialty. It's kind of a delightful little story. So I wonder if you would share that anecdote with our listeners. I'm delighted to. You know, anytime you take care of a patient, they sort of live on in your mind and body for the rest of your life, and they become part of your story. So here is the story of a sweet five-year-old boy. I was a third-year medical student. I was at Cincinnati Children's Hospital training, and he came in in the middle of the night. He was delirious. He had a very high fever, and I was the first person to assess him, and it was clear to me that he had a bad infection that had gone throughout his bloodstream. Eurosepsis actually was what it came to be confirmed as. And I, at that time, we don't do this anymore. I was the only one who could get his IV started and I developed his plan. I started everything for him. And in fact, nobody else could draw his blood. So anytime his blood needed to be drawn or an IV was blown and I needed to put another one in, not only was I caring for him and assessing how he was doing, but I also had to start anything related to his IV. So of course, he did not see me as somebody he was looking forward to seeing. I visited him every day in addition to rounding with him so that I could get to know him and his family. And after five days, that's a long time for a five-year-old to be in the hospital, he was all better. And the night before, I wrote my instructions to say if his labs came back with certain parameters that he could be discharged first thing in the morning once those labs came back and they were okay. But what happened is that after rounds, it was about noon, I went by his room again and he was sitting on his bed in his Sunday best. He had black patent leather shoes on and a bow tie and he and his mom were sitting there. They were just quiet, no televisions, no radios, absolutely silent. And I said, Jose, why are you still here? You're welcome to go home. And his mother said, doctor, he had to tell you something. So when you're a medical student and anybody calls you doctor, it's a really big deal. (laughs) And he jumped off the bed and he came over to me. He had barely spoken to me all five days. And he said, doctor, thank you for saving my life. And then he gave me a big hug and his mom started to cry. And I thought, pediatrics, that's it for me. 
Well, that is a, a great story. And I like what you said about how for caregivers, your patients really sort of impart some of their story and their experience with you. That's a, a great way to put it. Continuing on on the tour of the Sherry Barkin archives for just a moment longer, <laughs> I also read that you were the child of a doctor and a nurse. And so one might assume that a career in medicine was preordained for you. But I also read that at one point you were an accomplished ballet dancer and envision that as a possible professional path. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that and ultimately what altered your course. Julian, you have really done your homework. Well done. <laughs> well, I, because my parents were in medicine, we did talk quite a lot about medicine around the table. That was pretty common. But of all of my siblings, I was the only one who said I was not interested in going into medicine. They all said they were interested in going into medicine, and none of them did. I said I was not, and I'm the only one who did. And <laughs> The way that that comes to pass is never a straight line. Our stories are never logical. Maybe they are when you look retrospectively, but not as you're living them forward. And for me, I really, I love dancing and music. And I was fortunate enough to begin dancing and get quite committed to that when I was young and had the opportunity to audition for the Washington Ballet Company when I was 16. And I didn't actually want to be a ballerina. I knew that that was something I had to have on my CV if I was going to be a Broadway dancer. That's what I was aiming for. And ballet teaches you discipline, form, technique. It's one of those things you must learn. Like you must learn chemistry and biology if you want to go into medicine. Mm -hmm. You must learn ballet, at least at that time, if you wanted to aspire to be any type of really high-quality dancer. So I was fortunate because I really learned from the best, and it also taught me how to be remarkably disciplined, which is something I use every day. The other thing I use every day from that experience is that when you dance, you have to pay attention to the arc of the story, and you have to plan it all in mind. I use that all the time when I think about how we bring teams together, when I do my research projects, which are often four, six, eight years long. How do you hit your mark at year two, four, six, eight, so that you can achieve the ultimate goal with the highest quality? So I still use everything that I learned from dance. After that experience, when I was in high school, I also had a chance to audition for a jazz company. This is when I was a senior in high school, and half of the dancers in the company were deaf or hard of hearing, and the other half of us were hearing. And from that experience, I learned sign language, and I also had the great opportunity to perform with beautiful dancers, some hearing and some deaf. This was really impactful. It taught me a lot about how to pay attention to what language and communication really mean. I use that every day as well. The reason why I eventually got off the track for dance was that I did have the chance when I went to Duke to choreograph a lot of the musicals. And after one of the big musicals that I choreographed, The Music Man, I had a positive write-up in the paper. Some people from New York came and asked me to dance in the summer in New York, which I did after my freshman year. And right before my very big production of Jellicle Cats, the London version, which is incredibly long, I fell down a flight of stairs and I bruised my spine. And then I went on and performed. And I think it was that that created a little tear in my blood-brain barrier. When I got back to school for my sophomore year, and anybody who's pre-med knows your sophomore year is a killer year. You've got such hardcore classes. I woke up in the middle of the night with an ascending paralysis, and I was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre. So that was the time to learn what it was to be a patient in the hospital and to know that being smart is necessary but not sufficient. Being smart and compassionate and an advocate for your patients, that's how we can provide the best care. 
ultimately, that's when I decided that I could lose my legs tomorrow, but I can still contribute to the world in a positive way in many other formats. And I decided that would be medicine for me. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us and sorry to hear that you had that harrowing experience with that injury. But also it sounds like, as you mentioned, we are a product of our experiences in life and that experience shaped perhaps the perspective you have now as a caregiver because you had the experience of being a patient. You also mentioned in your response some of your clinical research work, and that's a great segue to the next question I have here. Throughout your medical career from, again, our research, it seems you've worked for several prestigious teaching hospitals and have no doubt positively impacted many lives along the way. You've also been lauded for what's been described as pioneering clinical research regarding health disparities and pediatric obesity. The data tells us that U.S. childhood obesity rates have tripled in recent decades. With that very brief bit of context, I wonder if you could tell us more about your research into health disparities around pediatric obesity and your broader observations about childhood obesity trends here in the U.S. I came to research in a way that was really quite organic. When you're taking care of patients, you always ask why. That's a, a big part about being a good diagnostician. What could be going on here? And I saw the obesity epidemic tip when I was clinically moving from Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, UCLA, and then to Wake Forest. And I noticed that it wasn't tipping equally for all of my patients. This was at a macro level. So I knew that it was not sudden anything. It wasn't that suddenly we were eating differently or suddenly we were not as active. For it to tip in such a macro way made me realize this is probably quite complicated as to why we see so much obesity now in our society and why it does not affect all populations equally. So I started asking questions and the way that I ask questions is very much about including families and community. So this is very important to me. Often we think we have a good question. I like to verify if it's a good question by talking with community and families to make sure that I understand what's the right question to be asking before we begin trying to understand how to solve it. So this is called community-engaged research. I always work with community partners. That includes parks and recreation. It includes the library, the YMCA, food banks. When I was at Vanderbilt, it includes the mayor's office, the governor's office, housing associations, principals, parents, a very much of a kaleidoscopic expertise that you bring together to look at the problem three-dimensionally to say, what's going on here and what can we do about it? So all of the studies that I've done over the past 20 plus years related to this are how can we pragmatically intervene and improve health trajectories, largely for underserved children, and in a two-generational way, improve the health of their families as well. And I came to understand through what we have learned together is that you have to look at common forms of obesity as complex science. It's genetics interacting with behavior, interacting with social environment, interacting with physical environment as it moves developmentally in time. And you have to look at all those feedback loops to understand where can you intervene, how can you intervene, and what would actually make a difference. When we talk about the epidemic of obesity, we see that obesity is one of the most common forms of 
visible malnutrition around. You can eat a lot of calories. So it's not about having food. It's about having good food Mm -hmm. that actually fuels your body and your brain to be as healthy as possible and also to change trajectories away from chronic disease and towards health. This is an epidemic that requires much more than just reminding people to eat healthy, to move more, and to sleep better. It is more about how we create systems that allow health and healthy choice to be the default. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us. I want to shift now to your current role as physician-in-chief at Children's Hospital of Richmond at VCU and as chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the VCU School of Medicine. It sounds like that might tilt more towards the administrative side of things, but I obviously know from what we've discussed so far that you've had an active role in direct patient care throughout your career. So I just wonder what a typical work day is for you and whether or not you still have opportunities to be involved in patient care and medical instruction in your current roles. Well, I am honored to take on these two new roles. I've now been here since the beginning of August. And really, in my first 100 days, I'm just coming upon those first 100 days, my goal really has been to listen and learn and to understand what are some foundational things we can do to set everybody up for success. So that's really been my primary focus. I will begin seeing patients in December. And I will also, actually, I I continue to do my research, which is an important part of who I am, as well as an academician. I have two NIH grant-funded projects that I'm leading right now that I was able to bring with me from Vanderbilt to VCU. A typical day is that there is no typical day. I think it always begins with understanding what's happening, not only in the hospital and in our outpatient settings, but what's happening in our communities. So I'm really fortunate I've been able to go out and meet with some of our community providers, meet with some of our community members, as well as ensure that I am present and rounding with our teams on the floor especially now when we have this unprecedented early respiratory viral surge of everything, RSV, flu, COVID, and more. So we are in a place where we are constantly strategizing as a team to do our very best together for the families that we serve. And because of this particular moment in time, what my day might look like when I start around 6.30 or 7 is very different than what it actually looked like at 7 or 8 o'clock at night. Every day includes being connected with my teams and listening to them, understanding what's working and what could be better. It involves strategizing and being on a lot of multidisciplinary calls. None of us are as good as all of us together, and that is especially true right now. It involves meeting with medical students and residents. Such an important part of what we do is we nurture the next generation of pediatric providers. For example, I'll meet with our chief residents right after this podcast so I can see how our residents are doing during these really tough times and we can plan forward together to maximize how we support them. It also includes meeting with my research teams. Many of them are across the country, so I have Zoom meetings. Later this week, I'll go to the NIH to meet with my collaborators on one of my NIH projects. Every day looks incredibly different, but what they have in common is listening learning, communicating, and doing our very best with whatever the day is bringing to us. 
Well, you've done a great job communicating on this podcast because in that response, you actually tackled what I was going to cover in the next two questions. So I will <laughs> I'll collapse that into one and then we'll bring it near to the conclusion of the podcast. I did want to just ask you about the opening of the new Children's Tower at the hospital. You mentioned bringing some of your research with you. You have come to Children's Hospital Richmond at VCU at a time when this project is ongoing, but obviously it's something of a shining jewel of a project that's coming online in 2023. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts about that facility and how you think it will impact the delivery of pediatric care in the community as part of you know the broader framework of clinical care at the hospital. How fortunate am I that I become part of the story of opening this new tower for the Children's Hospital of Richmond at VCU? This is a story that has been unfolding for decades. This is not new, and in fact, such an enormous initiative as this requires more than a village. It requires such dedication and commitment to the children of Virginia and our region to stand up this new freestanding children's hospital. And the reason why I believe this community has been so committed to getting to this point, this moment in time, is that children require different care than adults. And how you create an environment to maximize healing looks different when you're looking through the eyes of children and their families. That's what the Children's Hospital of Richmond at VCU's tower is all about. So it's designed through the eyes of children and families. In fact, every detail is so remarkably thoughtful. When you go in, you're welcomed with an ecosystem that mirrors the James River, that is fun and peaceful, that is engaging. There are many serenity and tranquil spaces recognizing what a remarkably stressful time it is when our children are sick. And it allows community to build because we need a lot of support when our children are sick. We also need the latest and greatest medical care and facilities, and all of that has been built into this building. It's also important, in fact, critical, because right now when we look across the country, more and more places are shuttering their beds for children, Mm -hmm. and they're switching them to adult beds. And that means that we need to create increased capacity to ensure that we are providing the care and services that children need. That includes emergency care, critical care, inpatient multidisciplinary care. It includes trauma and ensuring that we have the highest level care for those things that life throws at us that are unexpected. Everything is built into this new tower in a way that really increases our capacity. Well, it sounds like an amazing facility. I appreciate you providing some of those details. And again, it's just another example of the community investment that hospitals across the Commonwealth make to be able to meet the needs in a very intentional way, the the community health needs of the patient population they serve. Before we let you go, Dr. Barkin, it is a tradition here on the Patients Come First podcast to ask each of our guests a pair of sort of quirky questions to give our listeners a little more insight into who they are beyond just their professional expertise. To keep things interesting, we have a list of 10 mystery questions from which you can choose. (laughs) So if you would pick two numbers between 1 and 10, I'll ask you the corresponding questions. Wow. All right. This is exciting. I'm going to pick the numbers 3 and 8. Okay. Number 3. With the understanding that this is a family-friendly program, tell us one unpopular opinion you have that runs contrary to the general consensus. An unpopular opinion. 
Well, I would say for me, it's I am not about social media. I am about actual social connection. So while my kids are trying to encourage me to use Instagram and to include things about their story, I just cannot rally around that. I would much rather call them and have them tell me their story. So that might be unpopular in today's world, and I'm kind of old-fashioned about that, but I'm sticking to it. You're better off that way. And I <laughs> I have something similar. I am the eldest of five children. I'm in my mm. mid to late 40s now, and we're all spread apart. My youngest sibling, who just had her first child, is 26. And even the difference between the way that I would prefer to communicate with them, which is verbally by telephone, is different mm -hmm. from them. They just want a text message. So I can certainly relate to that dynamic that you're talking about with your children. And then was your second one number eight? Did I hear that correctly? That's right. Number eight is tell me one memory from your life that whenever you think of it, it makes you smile. Oh, I have so many. For all of my children that are listening to this, of course, it was the day you were born. <laughs> but I will also end to my husband the day we were married. But I will add to that that there are so many happy memories. How fortunate am I that it is hard to pick one? I think that I will say that one of my happy memories is something so simple. It's just gathering around the table and laughing with family and friends. And that is a memory that I can make almost every day. Well, it's always good to be present and to take pleasure in the simple joys of life. And it sounds like you're doing that. So thank you for, for sharing that with us. And with that, that's going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. And we want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Sherry Barkin, the Physician-in-Chief of the Children's Hospital of Richmond at VCU and Chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the VCU School of Medicine for joining us today. So thank you, Dr. Barkin. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.